there is a museum and store in Key West, Florida that I like to uh, visit whenever I'm there, and it's called Mel Fisher's, named for the late Mel Fisher, who spent his life doing uh, salvaging shipwrecks all over the world, especially around the Keys in Florida, where there were a lot of Spanish ships went down over the time of the Spanish time there, but even in the Mediterranean and other places in the world. And when you go into the museum, you can see a lot of the things that he salvaged. And some of them, when you finish, there's a store that you can actually purchase. And one time when I was there, I purchased one of the items that had been salvaged from a shipwreck. And I'd like to show it to you here. If you, anybody wants to look at after mass, you can you know, come up to see me. I'll show it to you. It's very small. You can hardly see it. But it's a, a small Roman copper coin. They called it the widow's mite because they said it would be a coin exactly like this that the widow in today's gospel reading would have placed in the treasury. Two small coins like this worth practically nothing in their day. Just looking at it, you can see it's not a coin of tremendous value even in its own time. You might think, well, now today, 2,000 years later, it's worth a lot more money than that. But actually, Roman coins such as this are so common in, in shipwrecks in the Mediterranean that I think I purchased this for about $25. So even today, it doesn't have a tremendous bit of wealth. It's more of an interest as an artifact than its physical amount of wealth that it would have. But I think of it, when I think of the woman putting those two coins in, that that's all she had to live on, were two small coins like that. Amazing. And she came to put money in the treasury, and of course, lots of people were putting in substantial amounts. The wealthy people put in quite a bit of money, and I'm sure trying, you can imagine some of them trying to impress other people with how much they were putting in. And then this poor woman comes in and puts just those two coins in, probably got some scoffs from a few people, but Jesus takes the opportunity to call his apostles over and says, she gave more than the rest, because even though the others gave substantial amounts of money, it was surplus wealth for them. It was money left over that they weren't spending. She gave her whole livelihood in the collection. And of course, we always use that example to remind people, especially those who are struggling, but when it comes to supporting the parish and the church and other charities, that we say, well, some people God has blessed with financial stability, and so they're able to make greater gifts, and we're grateful that they do. But if you're struggling to survive, don't worry that you have to match their gifts. As long as your gift is truly a sacrifice for you, then like the widow's might, you're giving a wonderful gift. And of course, that becomes a perfect springboard to dive into a discussion or a homily all about uh, our financial giving to the parish for our support, asking ourselves when we decide what we're going to put in our envelope or in the basket or uh, online giving, whatever it may be, how do we decide what we're going to put there? Do we give only what's left over or do we see our gift to the parish as part of our stewardship, our duty to try to support the parish and give a gift that we know is, is appropriate in return to God for all the gifts he's given us? Very easy to go into talking about a homily such as that. But I'm not going to do that today. Instead, I want to look at the widow and the two coins. I'm sure 
if anybody felt that she should have been exempt from having to put anything in the collection, would certainly have been the widow. After all, that's all she had to live on were those two small copper coins. And what good were they going to do to the temple treasury? How much could the priest there have bought with those two copper coins? Probably not much at all. And she probably could have said to herself, if I save these and you know, every week I get more, I can eventually buy myself a meal. Because remember, widows back then, they didn't have societies that took care of widows. If you were widowed, your oldest son took care of you. And if you didn't have any children to take care of you, you were left to be a beggar in the street. It was only the church that started having uh, societies or groups to take care of the widows. We hear about that in the Acts of the Apostles and Paul talking about it, you know, making sure that the widows who are in most need are really taken care of. So we invented that as a church, but they didn't have it in Jesus' time before he rose from the dead. So this woman, we could have justified just keeping the money for herself, but she didn't. She gave it to God. And that gift of herself from herself makes all the difference. And I would like to look at the gift of the widow's might today for us, not financially, not talking about the amount of money we give to God, but the amount of ourselves that we give to God. The gift that God has given us. Do we give him everything we have? Or do we give God only what's left over when we've done everything for ourselves and then decide, all right, I might as well think about God once in a while and do something. Do we give ourselves to him? And sometimes maybe a lot of people think, what do I really have to give God? I don't have much. We might say, I'm just a child, or I'm an old lady. What more can I possibly do for God? There's lots of other people out there with a lot of talent, a lot of skill. Let them do great things for God. But me, what can I do? And the answer is tremendous things for God if you give him permission. I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make is underestimate what we can do for God when we allow him. God doesn't need our credentials. He doesn't need us to have a great degree in one thing or another or to be super popular or super wealthy or you know, super intelligent or anything like that. All he needs from us is our permission to use him for, uh, or to use us for whatever he wants to do. Think of the little boy in the gospel story when Jesus feeds the multitude. There are thousands of people who need to be fed. And St. Andrew notices a boy there with only five barley loaves and two fish. And he says, but what good is that for so many people? And the boy probably could have said, you know, why should I give that? It's not going to feed anybody, whereas it makes a good meal for me. Why should I sacrifice this and give it up? But he did. He let the Lord have it, saying, it may not be much, Lord, but if you can use it, I give it to you. And of course, we know what the Lord did. The Lord worked a miracle and fed the people in abundance from that gift from a little boy. And so giving the Lord even the simplest of things we have, he can do great things in the world. And we don't have to worry about what we have. The old saying is God, um, he doesn't uh, choose, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. So if God calls us to do something, he will give us whatever we need to do it. And so maybe there's a young person here thinking God might be calling him to the priesthood, a religious life. And you might say, well, why me? What can I do? I'm not even the smartest in my class or anything of that nature. There's got to be lots of other kids out there that God could call because they're holier than I am and they have a lot more talents. God is not looking for talents. God is looking for permission. In fact, look at the apostles. The apostles were very ordinary working men 
that weren't very well-schooled. In fact, tradition tells us the only one who really had any great education was Judas Iscariot. And look what happened to him. He ended up denying Jesus. All Jesus needs is your permission to work in your life in whatever stage of life you are, whatever occupation, whatever you do, and God can do great things for you. Let's look at two examples that we would know. One, a young man who was born around the t- in France around the time of the French Revolution and grew up during the time of Napoleon. And after Napoleon was defeated and the, the restored monarchy, uh, the, the kings came back to rule in France, he decided to become a priest. And he was in a small town in, around Lyon in the south of France, living there. And he went into the seminary, but he was having struggles with his studies, most particularly with Latin. He could not get the hang of speaking Latin. And this was at a time where the mass was celebrated completely in Latin. And the bishop didn't want to ordain him. He says, what good to me is a priest who can't speak Latin? So he didn't want to ordain him. But his local pastor, Abbe Belay was the man's name, saw holiness in the man. And he said, no, he encouraged the bishop. He says, ordain him. You will be surprised. There is a a holiness about this man. Take a chance on him. And so the bishop listened to his counsel and ordained him. And he didn't know what to do with him, so he says, well, the abbe believes in him, he believes he's got holiness, fine, he can have him. And so he assigned the priest to work with his own pastor there, figuring the abbe would know what to do with him. But the abbe lived only another two years, and when he died, again, the bishop had no idea what to do with this priest. Where am I gonna put him? Where could I possibly use this man? So finally, he came up with the idea there was a small town in the boondocks up in the mountains that hadn't had a resident priest for years. And he says, what harm could he possibly do there? You know, he was worried that he was just going to damage people. He goes, so I'll put him there. Even if he says mass half well, it'll be better than the nothing that the people have right now. And if he leads them in the rosary once in a while, great. Then he'll be doing something there. So he assigned him to the town of Ars up in the mountains. And he showed up there and became the curé of ours and quickly revived the town and made it a community of worship that was amazing. He got people back to worship, uh, got rid of a lot of the sinful things that were going on in the town, and he became known as a great confessor. And people were coming to him from miles around because they were told that he had an ability to look into their hearts and tell them what was really going on to help them grow in holiness. And sometimes he sat as long as 16 hours a day hearing confessions. And of course, we know him as St. John Vianney. We have one of our stained glass windows here where the white roses in the main side of the church here. And he became eventually declared the patron saint of parish priests. This young man with no credentials, according to what everybody else thought, was able to become our patron saint because he simply gave God permission. A woman closer to our time, Agnes, I couldn't even begin to pronounce her last name because it's, uh, it's, it's an Albanian-Macedonian name that's got a mixture of things in it, born uh, of Albanian descent in the mountains in between the border of Macedonia and Albania, most likely in Macedonia, but you know, in really the middle of nowhere, eventually decided to become a religious sister. And she joined an order that sent her to India to work in a privileged girls' school, to work with wealthy Catholics living in Calcutta. And she had a cushy job there, living very comfortably, working with wealthy people. And then one day she was taking a train on a trip to Darjeeling, and she said she heard the Lord saying to her, 
he wanted her to leave that order and start a new order and work with all the poor people in the streets of Calcutta. And there were many at the time. And of course, um, India during the caste system you know, with the Hindus, uh, they, because they believed in reincarnation, the poor and the, and the suffering they believed were people who were being punished by the gods because they had lived evil lives in a previous life. So they came back as members of the lowest rung of the ladder in the case system, and that was the untouchables. And so the Hindus had no problem doing absolutely nothing for these people because they felt the gods were punishing them. But Teresa, of course, we know her as Mother Teresa of Calcutta, as a Christian, did not agree with that, and she went and started just bringing some of the people in and giving them a place to die in comfort, eventually looking for people to meet their medical needs. And she took a lot of wrath from many of the Hindus who did not like her interfering with their God's plans, but she just ignored them and continued to do what she did, and she won the admiration of the world. And one of my favorite stories of the life of St. Teresa of Calcutta was when she was invited to speak to the uh, General Assembly of the United Nations. And remember, this was a time when the Soviet Union was still very strong and the whole Eastern Bloc of communist nations and everybody else in the tense situation in the world. And she was invited to speak to the leaders of all these nations. And she gave them all a prayer card of, with the prayer of St. Francis on it and asked them all to please stand and together pray, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred, let me sow love. This beautiful prayer to the Lord. And everybody did it. Nobody balked. No one would dare say no to the saintly nun after what they'd seen she was doing in the world. She got communist leaders standing praying to the Lord. What an amazing thing this simple woman was able to do. Why? Simply because, as she once said, all God needs is for you to give him permission every day to work in your life. And if you give God permission, he can do great things through you. And my friends, there's not one of us here today who cannot do great things for God if we just give him permission. Whether we think we have great skills or not, whether we think as a young person, oh, I could never do what I see the priests that I know doing, or oh, they have so many more skills, not particularly. God will give you whatever he needs, whatever it is in our lives to do anything for the Lord. If we wake up in the morning and simply say, Lord, I give you permission today to use me to do your will in whatever way you wish, I am yours. Use me to be what you created me to be and help me to serve you. And if you do that, my friends, I promise you, through you, Christ can do amazing things. He can move mountains. He can change the world. He can work miracles through you. My dear friends, give God permission every day. And through you, he will change the world. May Jesus Christ be praised now and forever. Thank you for listening to this week's homily by Father Carrozza. If you enjoyed this homily, please pass the word on to your friends and invite them to listen. For more materials from Father Carrozza, please visit www.fathercarrozza.com.